Well, please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're continuing walking through 1 Corinthians. We now cross into the 7th chapter, and we have now a word for ourselves, a word for the single adults in the church, and a word for the married people in the church. The Bible, aren't you glad, has much to say about family life and about relationships. And to our own detriment, we would ignore what God has spoken in these realms. We know this, whether singled, single or married, life involves challenges for us. And I'm so grateful that the Bible addresses us even in challenges in these areas of life. I've always loved how the Bible is not a set of unrealistic platitudes disconnected from real life. Haven't you enjoyed the fact that the Bible speaks to real problems, real life, when you read it, so relevant? And so we're going to take up the Word of God. It is good for us, and it's good for our testimonies in the world around us. Two major themes from our text this morning. The first is this. We're going to see the value and advantages of singleness. Then we're going to see the value and responsibilities of marriage. Now remember our context. The Lord has brought to life a church in the midst of a pagan first century Roman city, the city of Corinth. And Paul has been responding to this church that he planted some years before because he had received some reports about them. They weren't doing well. He got reports from what he said, Chloe's people, whoever they were. And so they've reported, hey, things aren't going well in Corinth. And so Paul's been addressing in these first six chapters this report. And so he's been taking on the problem of divisions in their church. He's also been taking on this problem of sexual immorality there being expressed among the people of that church. But now we cross into chapter 7. Some of these same themes will carry over. But now he's responding to direct questions from these Corinthian believers. They've written Paul a letter. So he has Chloe's report. Now the Corinthians have sent a letter with some direct questions. Paul now in chapter 7 and going forward is going to address those. So that takes us to chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about, about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the Corinthian church, they have some questions. And so they write to Paul and we would say, well, this is an interesting question. They must have asked. We don't have the exact question. We just have Paul's response. And you asked about some things and here we go. And he, he responds, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The New American Standard Bible says it this way. It translates these words. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. So why this topic? Why did this come up? 
Well, apparently, there were those within the Corinthian church who were teaching that celibacy was for everyone, including married people. Someone must have been touching, teaching something like this, that people really shouldn't marry, and married people should now be celibate. So if that's the case, we have two different extremes happening in the church in Corinth. We have, on the one hand, immorality being tolerated in the church. Remember, we had chapter 5 dealing with that issue. Chapter 6, extensively. Remember, we had the command, flee sexual immorality. And so they had a problem with immorality in the church. People had the idea, look, it's just, it's just biology. It doesn't matter. Have appetites. No problem. So Paul had to head that off. But apparently, there were some in the church, at least, who had an extreme opposite view of that. Perhaps some who had the idea that really all sexuality is less than God's ideal, even in marriage. That all desire and physical intimacy is really unspiritual, even in marriage. So some had gone from being anti-immorality into anti-intimacy, even in marriage. So these are two extreme unbiblical views in the church, promoting immorality and promoting celibacy for married people, not where believers are to live. Now, we don't really have this issue so much going on today, but have you had to navigate in your life watching out for extremes on both ends? There can be those who are trying to get you into an extreme, maybe legalism. Here are some extra rules for you to follow. The Bible doesn't say this, but I'm going to add some things to you. But then there's license on the other hand. Anything goes. You're under grace. Do what you want. And as a biblical Christian, you have to steer out of both of those ditches. So I can't be following those who are lowering the standard of God's word. Neither do I want to follow those who are adding to and really trying to exceed the standard of God's word. I don't want to be among those who are ignoring the teachings of scripture, but neither do I want to be led by those who are adding to the teachings of God's word. So in the church at Corinth, there were these cross currents of, of things that were not true that Paul's having to teach on both sides. So there was the Corinthian immorality. Anything goes. All things are lawful for me, dealt with that in chapter 6. But also the Corinthian asceticism, the idea that really, if you were spiritual, you wouldn't even have these desires anymore. And of course, that thinking is false. And we don't have exactly this issue today, but I do think there might be subtly in some people the idea that really, if something's pleasurable, it's probably not of God. We talk about desserts this way, don't we? Sometimes we see a good dessert and somebody will say, whoa, whoa. That one is sinfully sweet, you know, and we're joking, you know, they just label things. That's, that's sin. We, we talk about chocolate. What do we say? That's decadent chocolate. That's just inappropriate. It's so good. So if something's really pleasurable, that can't be of God that we know better than that if we think, but we don't want to subtly come into that. So let's talk about desserts a second. The reason you and I can enjoy a dessert is that our good God gave us taste buds to really enjoy it we got to use self-control, but this is something to enjoy. Point we're making is this, that it is possible for people to overreact to a problem and create another problem. They tell us young drivers can be like this. That's why when you're taking them out for driver's ed and getting those hours, you've got to coach your young driver. They don't have a lot of experience. They might have two wheels go onto the shoulder. They tell us the young driver can cause a wreck because they will jerk the wheel trying to avoid that danger and they'll create another danger. And we learn by experience, all right, I need to correct. Let me get my wheels off the shoulder, but let me stay in my lane here. And so same thing theologically. Sometimes if you're a, a new Christian or an undisciplined or undiscipled believer, you can think, well, I, I have to avoid this. So let me go way over here and go into error on another side. 
Paul warned the Colossians about this in Colossians 2.23. Speaking of some false teachers, he said, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So how do we avoid these two ditches of legalism on the one side and license on the other side? Well, the word of God is so, so much of a gift for us. I think about Galatians chapter five, Paul wrote to those believers and he lets them know, listen, don't follow those who are trying to put you back under the law. Circumcision is not necessary in the new covenant. Don't go under, under those laws anymore. You're in grace, but neither should you go all the way over to following after your flesh anymore. How do you avoid following your flesh or being back under the law? It's walking in the spirit, he tells you. So you walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You don't need the law for that any longer. And this also is a corrective for us. That's why it's so important that you're in the word of God, letting the scriptures teach you, not being pulled to and fro by all kinds of opinions that float around out there. So this is, we're just talking about our context here. Questions are coming inbound for Paul from the church in Corinth. Questions related to marriage. Questions related to singleness. Questions related to desire and temptation. And so here in this context, he speaks to us about the value of singleness. Notice in our text, he speaks to the value of singleness. He declares that singleness is good. And that takes us back to verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Then go down to verse seven. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another to the unmarried and the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul affirms two things here, the goodness of singleness and also that he himself is single. So understand biblically, singleness is not to be considered some strange status. Biblically, singleness is not to be considered an inferior status. In fact, let me remind you, in our culture, do you know that the majority of people in our own county are single adults? So of those 18 and older, 51% of people in our county are single adults for, for whatever reason they're single, whether not yet married or widowed or divorced. So that's most. So I think sometimes our singles might not feel that way. They think I'm, I'm in this strange condition. Everybody seems to be paired up, but I'm not. But in reality, 51% of people in our county are single adults. Across America, it's roughly 50-50 married adults and also single adults. I hope that's encouraging to you. But I think even more than that is this. Here is the most prominent apostle. Now, Paul wouldn't say that about himself. What do he say? I'm the least of the apostles. But the way we estimate him, we see how God used him, how much of our New Testament written through this man as the Holy Spirit used him. We'd say, really, this is the most prominent apostle in the new covenant, and he was a single man. I hope that's encouraging to you. But even more noteworthy than that is that your savior lived as a single adult during his time on the earth. And we're receiving instruction on these matters from a man who was a single adult. So let me say this to you singles. God sees you in your singleness. Jesus lived your life. The apostle Paul lived your life. Also, this teaching on sexual purity, these words were written, guided by the Spirit, but these were written by a single adult man. So somebody can say, I, I don't think this is fair. I don't think this is even reasonable to have this biblical sexual ethic for singles. 
But just remind yourself, the vessel that God used to write this was a single adult, like many of you in the room are. So the same spirit who was in Paul, who was living this life and who was writing the scripture, is the same spirit who is in you as well. So Paul here, he presents singleness as good. Did you notice also he called it a gift? That's verse 7. He's saying that God gives this grace of singleness to some who would be able to live a single life to the glory of God. That God gives this grace to enable someone to live this lifestyle. And even we could say if it's not their preferred choice, that's not how they wanted to live their life, God still gives grace to those who seek him. Again, that's verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Singleness is good. It is a gift. This week in doing a lot of reading on singleness, I wanted to make sure speaking to this, not only biblically accurate, but with the right thoughtfulness to our congregation, did a lot of reading on singleness. And I came upon a website from Focus on the Family called Boundless.org. I'll mention more about that in a moment. But through that, I, I heard about Elizabeth Elliott and something she taught about the gift of widowhood. So I tracked down where Elizabeth Elliot spoke about that. So Elizabeth Elliot, if you don't know her name, she was a widow of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, a famous missionary of a generation ago who was martyred in Ecuador, taking the gospel to unreached people. And so she became a widow young in life. She did later remarry, and that spouse also died after some time, so widowed twice. And so it was interesting when I, when I heard that she referred to the gift of widowhood. And I wanted to track down her words, not just somebody quoting her. And so I found it. She has a website, though she's gone on to heaven, a website called ElizabethElliot.org. ElizabethElliot.org. And, and you could even Google this this afternoon and type in gift of widowhood and to hear her talk about it. She's very humble about it. She doesn't act like that was my first thought. You know, when my husband was martyred, I thought, oh, this is a gift. Not, not at all. Uh, she talked about how just could not, those words couldn't process. She, she didn't think that was going to be the outcome for her husband when he was martyred. And so, so that was not the first thought she had. L obviously, lots of grief. But in time, she came to understand, really in light of 1 Corinthians 7, that she should regard even widowhood as a gift from God. She processed God's sovereignty. He, he not only allowed this, but God, this sovereignly was his will that she would be a widow that, that first time and that yet another time. And, and so in light of this passage, she thought, I need to receive this in a sense as a gift. Again, I commend that to you. She has the credibility to speak about that where I don't, but elizabethelliot.org, look up gift of widowhood. It just, it's a scripture soaked talk that she gives very inspiring. So singleness, according to the apostle Paul here, it's a gift. Also, it has advantages. And to see that, we need to go down to verses 32 through 35 here of our chapter. Look at this with me. Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the, un but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul describes an unmistakable advantage for single adults. Certainly there are some difficulties and disadvantages, but, but here is a singular advantage the ability to give undivided devotion to the Lord. Of course, ideally, a married couple wants to give 
undivided devotion to the Lord as well. Let's together link up to serve and worship Jesus, whatever he calls us to do. But the single person has an advantage here. Paul said this is preferable for him in his experience because the single person, we could say this way, can just up and do what God's calling them to do. Don't have to consult with anybody in that. The single person has the ability, according to Paul, to more narrowly focus their life on the Lord and on his work. And it's been an honor to watch single adults do this for many years now. I remember paying attention, especially when I served in missions, when Joy and I served overseas, we got to know a lot of single adults who many of them, I think, would have preferred to have been married, but they weren't going to wait here. God had called them to the nations with the good news, and there they went with the gospel. And can I tell you, most of those singles that I'm thinking of were women. In fact, we can say this, that most Southern Baptist missionaries are women. I mean, there are a bunch of men out there, but that means half of every married couple, of course, there's a woman there. Then you pivot to the single missionaries, and overwhelmingly, the majority is that those are female single missionaries. And, and here's what's impressive. They go to hard places, places you don't want to go, not tourist places. I mean, they, they go there too for the gospel, but they'll go to places you don't go there for tourism, typically. Dangerous places. I've always been awed by that. In fact, during my time with IMB, we were asking the question, where are all the young men? Because the, the single women are going courageously to the nations in obedience to the Great Commission. Why isn't there a corresponding number of men going out as well for the gospel? I mean, they're there, but the numbers are the women. It's just impressive. And so I think about our own church. We years ago launched out Sid to Central Asia. She went out in her 40s, a single adult, her entire adult life. And then gave her life there in the Great Commission as she was martyred there in Central Asia. Courageous single woman. Right now, scout out there, a young lady, courageous, serving the Lord. And we're grateful to have her home soon for a little while. We can think about well-known Southern Baptist missionaries like Rebecca Naylor, who we talked about recently, who recently retired, but served in South Asia most of her adult life as a surgeon for the gospel. And then, of course, we have this annual offering where we give to missions named for a single woman, Lottie Moon. So they're serving courageously this undivided devotion to the Lord with its challenges, but taking advantage of this and just going wherever God leads. But we don't have to go to the ends of the earth to see this. Right in our own congregation, so many single men and women who are serving the Lord. If you look around our church, like I considered this week, we have single adults serving with our children. We have single adults serving with our students in our music ministries on mission trips. In fact, we have a team in route about right now from Poland and on this team of seven, three single adults on this team on their way back to us. In our prayer meetings, single adults and many other ministers of the church, we would say our single adults as well as our married are all integral in the ministry of the church. Sometimes people ask us, hey, do you guys have a singles ministry at Staples Mill? And in many ways, I wish we did have a more defined singles ministry, you know, maybe more seminars on things like that. Uh, I hope you do appreciate what a challenge that is. Singles are single for lots of different reasons and different stages in life. It's, it's hard to pull that together. But what I can honestly say is when they ask, is there a singles ministry here? I'd say the entire ministry. The entire ministry is a singles ministry. And, and we see it reflected in church. We have godly men and women plugged in everywhere in the life of the church. And we want that to be the case, that, that you are here, that you're wanted, that you are just plugging in. You're getting your fellowship needs met that way as well. So Paul says it's a gift, a gift of singleness. He said there are advantages, but of course there are also challenges. And one of the challenges for a single adult is the moral challenge. 
Now, the world would say that's not a challenge at all. You just be single and you just go fulfill yourself with anybody you want. In fact, the world's even created apps for things like that, sadly. And so a, a, a godly single says, I, I can't do that, but there, I have all these desires. Here is a challenge. Now, remember, we have chapter six context here. We've come out of chapter six into this. And so we were already told that for whether you're married or single, single you are to flee sexual immorality. And that still holds true. But how do you possess these God-given desires in an honorable way? Well, it's going to revolve around you walking with Jesus, just like the married people, but everybody, but particularly the single, single adult. So how will I be holy, even with all these desires and living in a culture like we live in? Listen, we, we need to abide in Christ. Remember what Jesus taught? We're to abide in him. And how we practically do that here in the new covenant is we spend time with him. We are so blessed to have the Bible so critical when you pull aside daily to meet with Jesus, that you're in the word of God. That's going to help you not be misled by your own passions. It'll help you not be misled by what the culture is telling you constantly. And so you're pulling aside with the Lord in the word, in prayer, bringing all your needs before him. You're walking full of the Holy Spirit. You're walking with Christ. You're serving Christ. And so if you desire to marry and you're not yet married and you don't know if that's going to be God's will, the, the passage here gives us help. What, what should I do in a situation like that? Well, devote yourself to the Lord and trust in his sovereignty. God, you have a plan for me that may not be exactly what my plan was, but I trust in your good plan for me. And we can trust in his promises. Lord, I know that I'm, I'm faithful to you and whatever circumstance I'm in, that you will bless, you will reward me in some way in your timing and your choosing, however you do it, you will reward faithfulness as I follow you with this. And of course, this passage would tell you, take advantage of your singleness for the kingdom, serve the Lord, and then do things that are beneficial should God want you to marry in the future. So I mentioned earlier, there's a website that Focus on the Family has called boundless.org and and some of the believers there are singles talking to other singles, not knowing what the future might hold in regards to marriage. They said, well, do things now. Serve the Lord, but do some things that would still be profitable should God want you to marry. And they mentioned things like, if you're working on, on an education, go ahead and complete your education. Keep moving forward. If you have indebtedness, it would be to your advantage for yourself as a single or as married. Go ahead and start paying down your indebtedness. Take care of your physical health. These are things that you can do. So I commend to you that, that resource, boundless.org, by Focus on the Family. A lot of helpful teaching and blogs and people who understand your lifestyle if you're single. But I also, again, want to recommend the church to you. That you plug in everywhere in the church as you've seen modeled by other people in the church. And then a word to families. Make sure that you're looking to include the single adults in your life into your fellowship. We've just been looking, first of all, at the value of singleness according to the word of God, that it is good, that there are advantages. But now let's pivot and talk to the married people. And the word of God talks of the value of marriage, that marriage actually is also wise. That takes us back to verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse nine again. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry... For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul teaches here there's a value to marriage and that marriage can be, for many people, wise because of immorality. And that's not to say that's the only reason people should marry, but it's not an unspiritual reason to marry according to the scriptures. 
because of these internal God-given desires, because of the difficulty of exercising self-control for many people, therefore they should marry if they have the choice. Now we think about first century, that might've been a little bit easier to arrange because of arranged marriage. A person could say, look, I think it's time for me to get married. You get your family involved to go arrange a marriage with another family and maybe more likely than in our culture to make that happen just from a human standpoint. But always this would be challenging. You can think about some context where there aren't a lot of believing singles. And so you want to be married, but your family might not be able to find a believing person for you to marry. Always been challenges in this life related to things like that. But given the choice, because of these temptations, Paul's just making the point, it is fine. It, it even makes some sense to go ahead and have a spouse for this. So the point is here is marriage is not less spiritual. Singleness has its advantages, but marriage is not less spiritual. It's also a gift. It can be necessary. It can be wise. Again, verse 9, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He's going to mention also in verse 5, there is the reality of, a, of the evil one, Satan, who also plays in this area, trying to trip you up as well. So we're talking about the value of marriage. But Paul also, in this context, talks about our responsibilities in marriage. And in particular, our responsibility for intimacy in our marriage. Now, this isn't all God's ever said about marriage. So we're, we're always reading the Bible in its context. So you think the Bible has spoken a lot about marriage, all the facets of it. So Genesis chap chapter one teaches us about marriage. And also we're in places like Ephesians. We learn about how marriage is a picture of Christ and his love for the church and the church submission to Christ. That speaks a lot to marriage. Places like 1 Peter, many more, many more. And we learn about a lot of things that we owe to our spouses if we're married. We owe them love and consideration and forgiveness and honor and helpfulness and partnership and more. These two lives of two believers married together should be intertwined for worship, for prayer, and for serving the Lord together. But in this context, Paul's addressing sexual temptation and these normal desires. And he says, here are three words that should be reflected in, in the realm of intimacy in your marriage. And the first word here he gives really is the word duty. Now that doesn't sound very romantic, but Paul's making a point here in this context. Again, look at verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. We don't usually use that wording very often. So the New American Standard Bible says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. The NIV says he must fulfill his marital duty. The New English translation says a husband should give to his wife her sexual rights and vice versa. So physical intimacy within marriage, we could say it's other things too, but it is duty. It's, there's a responsibility here. Yes, it's an expression of love. That's also taught in the Bible. Go to Song of Solomon, read parts of the book of Proverbs. Yes, love. Yes, a, a gift to be enjoyed by the couple. But it's also to be understood as a spiritual responsibility in a marriage. It's a stewardship. So here's how marriage works. You, you are bound together to one. You are limiting yourself to one. And then in that context, you're giving yourself to just that one. So ideally, this is an instruction that's not needed in a marriage. So ideally, things are going like they ought to. Nobody should have to invoke 1 Corinthians 7. You know there's a little bit of problem in your marriage already if somebody's having to go, aha, and I'm going to demand this. And, but, but ideally, there's a lot of love and care going on. You're having fun together in all of life, and this should just be an outflow of that. 
But Paul tells us here that there is a, an important responsibility here. Shouldn't be reduced to just a legal requirement, an obligation, but it is a responsibility. And his wording here does elevate that in our minds. Okay, this is not unspiritual. This is not unimportant. This is a responsibility here. And again, this is among numerous responsibilities in our marriages to help each other, to serve each other, to honor each other, to be kind and considerate to each other. And this, we're called to meet these needs in each other. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm preaching right now, right? This, this is my role. But I'm preaching as a pastor. And so let me, let me speak pastorally here as we apply this. This is a passage no one should abuse in their marriage. So I, I could anticipate somebody, not anybody in particular, but I can anticipate somebody saying, look, I, I demand this. They're neglecting every other need in their spouse. They're just, this is the one verse in the Bible they now are interested in, neglecting all the care they're supposed to be giving. Again, if, if we're talking about a guy, he should be loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And in the context, this is true. But nevertheless, I'm going to make the point as a pastor, no one should be abusing this. It reminds me of a counseling session I had years ago, a couple not member of the church. And I remember talking to them and a troubled, a troubled couple in a number of ways. And of course, I love them, wanted to help them. But one of the problems was the man was not meeting a number of needs of his wife, neglectful, harsh, all that. But what he wanted to talk to me about and what, what, what he wanted me to talk about to his wife was the idea of submission. He said, doesn't the Bible say she's supposed to submit to me? I had a really hard time getting on his side of the table for that. So I'm thinking, well, the Bible does teach that a husband is a love his wife like Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. And the Bible does say that a wife is to follow that leadership of her husband. And so those are true things. But I couldn't say, and you, woman, need to submit to this jerk of a husband you have. I couldn't do it. Those principles still remain, but it needs to be worked out in a context of a better marriage than that. So likewise, with this teaching, you, you do understand all of Scripture. We're to be loving each other in every way, but including this way, this is not unspiritual you would be doing harm to your spouse to not take this seriously. So there's duty here, according to the word of God. There's also the word authority here. And isn't this interesting? Verses three and following here it again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband, the wife does not have authority. There's the word. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But, they, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is very interesting, this idea of authority and who really possesses your body. Very interesting because in the last chapter, in the context of sexual immorality, we were told you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So this body is not yours. No, none of us in the room can say, this is my body and do as I please. No, no. Jesus created your body. He redeemed your body. Your body's for him. You're to glorify the Lord with your body. Remember we saw that? And here we come to chapter seven. And if you're married, there's a sense in which, yes, your body's totally belonging to Jesus. And here the word of God says, and there's a sense if you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. They have some authority over your body and vice versa in your relationship. Notice how mutual it is. Nobody can misapply this verse and say, look how chauvinistic this is. Like, like a man owns her body. No, it's mutual. It's both of you back and forth here. You belong to your spouse. Your body belongs to them in a sense and, and vice versa. So we have the word duty here in the realm of intimacy. We have the realm of the word authority in this realm. And now this word agreement. Look at verse five again. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. 
So see again this mutuality here in this relationship. So it would be wrong for one to unilaterally decide to abstain from intimacy in marriage. Has to be agreement. So celibacy is not an option for a married person. Paul said, I'll give you this perhaps for a limited time, for a short amount of time, if you both decide that you want to fast from everything so that you can devote yourself to prayer, let that be a limited time that you both agree to, and then you come back together. He's making the point that physical intimacy in a marriage is not some rare occurrence that sometimes happens, but it's to be a regular experience. Otherwise, if one person's unilaterally deciding to say, this is not important for us, this is not even spiritual, you're defrauding your spouse. You're, you're endangering your spouse to do that. So whether it's some kind of pseudo super spirituality, you're wronging your spouse, or maybe it's poor priorities, or maybe it's punishment of your spouse. You can't sin against your spouse by withholding this. So if you're, if you're married, the ship of celibacy has sailed and you're not on it, you are in the, be in agreement with each other in this area of your, of your marriage. Again, it would be sin against your spouse otherwise. Now, I think in our culture, we really don't have a lot of people thinking it's just not spiritual and I'm, I'm above this. I mean, it's possible. Again, it's in the word of God. If, if you need that corrective, it's here. I think more often couples don't meet this need in each other because of neglect, not because of some theological reason. So it could be a, a person in the couple that's just watching tons of TV, just lets the hours roll by until there's exhaustion. I just watched all the TV or the Netflix I could possibly watch, and I got nothing left for anybody. And so that would be, a, you don't have spiritual reasons for it, but you could still find yourself not meeting a need in your marriage. Maybe it's not TV. It could be a gamer. Like I'm in a tournament. I'm always in a tournament. I just play for hours and hours. I got no time for anybody else here. I just consume the hours. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just somebody on a phone just scrolling for endless hours, neglecting the people right there in the room with them. It could even be Bible study and prayer. A person could be, I just study the Bible all the time. I don't, I don't really have time for my spouse. They should understand I'm more spiritual than that. I remember visiting in a home of some relatives years ago and one of the spouses was just gone for hours studying the Bible regularly. I remember thinking, I love the Bible. I was a pastor then when I had this visit in their home. I thought, I love the Bible. Bible study is great, but it shouldn't take you away like that from your family. Because that Bible you're studying, so detailed, is going to tell you don't neglect the people around you. It shouldn't be harming your marriage that you're studying the Bible. It should be enhancing and driving you to loving them as you ought to. So here, here's the point there. Many of us just need to arrange our lives better, right? So if you find there's just no time, neglected people, I got other priorities, you need to arrange your life better so that you can talk to each other. You can enjoy each other's company in lots of ways and be intimate with one another. Also preaching, but, but pastoring at the same time here. Let me say this, this is also an area of life where there has to be patience. There are illnesses, there are injuries, and they may make this not as big a part of your marriage as you wish it were, but aren't we committed to loving our wife and we're to be faithful in sickness and in health. So even when life gets difficult, we're to be patient and loving and considerate with our spouses. Also speaking as a pastor that you might need help in this area. So here we're talking about this one dimension of physical intimacy in marriage. Many of us would understand, listen, but some of this is an overflow of every other dynamic in your marriage. 
There could be a lot of pain going on, a lot of bad habits going on in the marriage that's really impacting negatively this part. You want to address that as well. And so let me just remind you, if there are other relational factors hurting this part of your marriage, talk to each other as a couple. You should be able to talk about this or talk to a pastor. Could we, could we meet to talk about our marriage? And then in that context, in the safety of that, we could talk about these issues or one of our Christian counselors. There can be medical issues involved here. Talking to your primary care doctor as well about this could be helpful to you. So we've been talking about singleness. We've been talking about married people, but let's talk together finally. Let's remind ourselves, but the ultimate relationship is Jesus. And that's how this whole service started. Our choir sang about Jesus. We sang worship songs about how he's the best. And it is true. And so today, do you know Jesus? You need to know him. He's the greatest thrill. He's the one that loves you most. And you'll be able then to know Christ, then build every other relationship on that first relationship with Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus awesome? Because he left heaven to rescue you from your sin. He saw you estranged from God, no way to know a holy God. And Jesus came to take your sin away. He died on a cross. He was raised from the dead so that if you believe in him, you can know God, the greatest love imaginable now and for all of eternity. Today, would you put your faith in Jesus Christ? See your need. Trust in Jesus. How you say, how do I show my trust in him? Ask him. Tell him that you see your sinfulness. Tell him you see what he did for you on the cross and the resurrection. And then ask him to be your savior. You can do that even now. Let's pray together. Lord, we do celebrate you and the greatness of you and your love. Lord, your love is the best. Yours is the key relationship of our lives. And Lord, we want to love you so well and experience your love so well that this spills over into our friendships, but also <clears throat> into our homes, into our marriages. And so God, would you be glorified in singleness in our church? Would you be glorified in marriage in our church? May this be a testimony to the world around us that we have found our greatest satisfaction in you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.